You're listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference Archive. Interference Archive is a social space, exhibition venue, and OpenStax archive of social movement material. Our work is rooted in the belief that our shared histories should be held in common and accessible to all. The archive is collectively run and volunteer powered, and we rely on donations to keep us up and running. To support what we do, go to interferencearchive.org and click on Donate. Thanks for listening. The following is a recording of an event that happened in July of 2019. Archive volunteer Colin moderates a conversation with Marnie Brady, Amanda Huron, and Athena Viscusi, founding members of Radio CPR, a pirate radio station in Mount Pleasant, D.C., and Petri Dish of Radio Mutiny and Prometheus Radio Project. For more information about these folks, please see the show notes. This event was organized in conjunction with Resistance Radio, the People's Airwaves, an exhibition at Interference Archive about community and pirate radio and its relationship to social movements that was on view at the archive between July 11th and September 29th, 2019. All right, so to get started, I thought it'd be good to parse through some of the different terms we use, uh, such as pirate radio, community radio, low power FM, and also uh, hopefully see like a brief history of community and pirate radio over the last 20, 30 years. Cool. So, uh, you know, it's a big topic, you go all over the place. I'm just going to like give a couple of key timeline sort of events that as they happen. First one in the sort of modern movement that, you know, that we all identified with was, uh, was Mbana Kentako, uh, who lives in a housing project in uh, Springfield, Illinois. He put on uh, uh, a pirate radio station that was one watt that broadcasted his housing project for about three years before anyone really noticed outside of his housing project that he was doing it. And he, he, gave, he did an interview one day with a guy who got beat up by the police, which led to demonstrations, you know, like an aggressive police response. And the next week, the FCC came to his place and they said, you're, you've got a radio station that's going to interfere with airplanes and going to like make airplanes fall out of the sky. I was like, really? Well, where were you three years ago when I started? I think it has more to do with what I'm saying and that it upset the police that I called them out on, on police brutality. And uh, he went to the federal building in town and he presented himself for arrest in front of a press conference and he said, if, I'm, if what I'm doing is wrong, arrest me now. And proved to me that it has to do with the airplanes and not to do with the police brutality reporting I did. And the FCC did not take him up on it. <laughs> so he started broadcasting with impunity for a number of years, from 87 to the, to the mid-90s. Eventually, he did get visited again by the FCC, but, but people sort of noticed this embarrassing moment of enforcement for the FCC, and so that was sort of where we all locate the beginning of it. And the, the next person was Stephen Donifer in the Bay Area. He was an anti-war protester who was dissatisfied with the way that the media was covering the first Gulf War. And he went up in the hills with a backpack and broadcast speeches through the Bay Area. He got fined and dragged before the courts and they tried to put an injunction against him. But he had a very successful legal team with the National Lawyers Guild Committee on Democratic Communications, who basically argued that the FCC should be using the least respect, restrictive means available to them to regulate freedom of speech on the airwaves, and that allowing one corporation to own 800 radio stations was not the least restrictive means available to them for, 
for fostering a freedom of ideas and expression. And interestingly, the judge in that case did not render a ruling for over four years. And so that's sort of where we all came in, was we saw, well, if anyone's going to get arrested for this, it'll be him first. So he started manufacturing kits. He opened up a storefront in the Bay Area and had a radio station with like over 100 DJs very soon. And a bunch of different stations uh, started in the wake of that, including mine, which was Radio Mutiny. And there were estimates that there were about 1,000 pirate radio stations in the period during that lawsuit, or not lawsuit, uh, uh, that legal action uh, between 94 and 98. One other thing I'll say about it, we're certainly not the first pirate radio stations, but as a mentor of mine, uh, Jeremy Lansman said, just about everyone that ends up being a radio engineer was a radio pirate at some point. You know, they were a 16-year-old kid playing around with transistors and like, you know, they could broadcast down the block. And yeah, we all did that. The difference with you people is you think you're right. We thought we were getting away with something and like, you know, but, but you thought that you were actually politically doing the right thing for freedom of expression and you were a politicized movement. And so that's, that's where I'm sort of identifying the, the particular movement we were part of, which was a very politicized pirate radio movement. So in 1998, the judge finally rendered her decision and Donifer lost on a technicality. And the FCC started doing a sweep around the country. And my station, Radio Mutiny, was caught up in it. And in retaliation, I connected up with Amanda and with the people from Radio CPR. And we planned a big pirate march on the Capitol which uh, was, was our response to the wave of FCC raids. Uh, from there, Radio CPR launched, and around that time is when the FCC started saying, look, there's no way we can actually like physically go around and bust a thousand radio stations. And the other big macro political thing that was happening was the Telecommunications Act of 1996, mm -hmm. passed by the Democrats, an enormous giveaway to the communications lobbies and the corporations. And the, the biggest thing that it did in radio was it eliminated the long-standing caps that ensured localism in radio. So before 1996, no one could own more than 40 radio stations. To me, <laughs> it sounds like a lot to own 40 radio stations. But for Clear Channel, that was like an abridgment of their freedom of speech. To like, we should be able to own as many radio stations as we want. So that was one of the things that happened and it caused massive dislocations in the industry. What had been like a largely in-person sort of an industry, it was, it was locally owned, it was a lot of different owners. And what happened was a very rapid consolidation where all the radio stations were bought up for more than they were probably worth. And then they cut all the local staff and they just had sort of automated programming. So they started, that was like the rise of the Rush Limbaugh's and that sort of, nationally syndicated programming. There always was some, but now it was on such a scale and lots of people who had worked in radio for their whole lives were fired and found themselves you know, without work and without a connection to the industry. In light of all this, the FCC saw our protests and they saw the pressure from like all the people that had been thrown out of radio in the past couple of years. They saw a dra drastic reduction in the number of minorities owning radio. It went in just like about two years, it went from the whopping 3% minority of ownership of radio down to about 1.5% uh, ownership of, of TV and radio stations. And it was the first African-American chairman of the FCC. And he said, I, actually, the pirates are 
kind of, I can't agree with what they're doing because they're breaking the law and I've got to go around busting them. But we're going to try to do what we can within the law to, to fix this and uh, initiated the low power FM proceeding, which culminated in 2000 with the passage of the low power FM radio uh, rules. The broadcasting industry struck back and they got a law passed that actually took away the FCC's authority to give out radio licenses in most of the country, basically because they were giving them to us. And so they, uh, the Radio Broadcasting Preservation Act passed in the fall of 2000 and made sure that no radio licenses could be given out in the top 50 urban areas in the country by changing the technical rules. So for the next 10 years or so, the group that I worked with, Prometheus, worked to repeal that law and to uh, fight the further consolidation of media ownership. And it wasn't until 2011 that we actually were able to repeal that law. So between 2000 and 2010, a bunch of low power FM stations were built, but they were mostly in places that had more cows than people, <laughs> which is probably why you haven't heard about it very much in New York City. And uh, so we built lots of radio stations in places like Opelousas, Louisiana, or Immokalee, Florida, or, or Woodburn, Oregon, but we never were able to build in Portland, Oregon, or New Orleans, or, or other places. And then finally, in 2011, we were successful in repealing that bill, and then there was a window that opened that allowed most cities to get the last remaining three or four radio licenses, and so a bunch of radio licenses were passed around the country for that. So, so anyway, that's the timeline. I am looking forward to this today because uh, you know, I talk a lot about Low Power FM. I still build radio stations all the time as a radio engineer, but it's pretty awesome to go back to what the roots of the movement were and what we were, what we were trying to accomplish in the first place before it got to DC. So that's sort of our you know, trajectory. Radio CPR started because Amanda met Petrie. That's the sum total of the story. Like human connection yeah. is, is, is the theme. You know, right. that that's how this all happened, and, and that's how it was all sustained. Amanda came back and said, I met this amazing guy. He's got all these great ideas, and we should have a station. And we were like, a station? <laughs> and then Petrie comes down with a, like, soldering iron and teaches us how to build the radio station. So Stand for Our Neighbors started in the, the 90s under this same administration that Pichu was talking about because there were drastic cuts to welfare and to uh, immigrant rights. There were horrible bills that were being passed. We were residents of a Latino and African-American uh, neighborhood. I'm a social worker. The people who we serve were just being um, decimated and it was very much like today. So uh, a bunch of us social workers actually held a, a forum at the library because we didn't have Instagram, you know, <laughs> so we had to hold a forum at the library to educate people about what was going on. Um, we Xeroxed some flyers <laughs> and put them on trees and Amanda and her bandmate Natalie were walking down the street and mm -hmm. saw a flyer and came to our forum. <coughs> And um, they were these young punk rockers tied into the do-it-yourself DIY <laughs> um, punk rock community in D.C. that was really vibrant. We had this political mission, and then it only got more serious because then 9-11 happened, and then we got the other president, and that feeling of, of, of community under attack. So you had that, and then you had people with this incredible artistic talent and, and connections and ideas and energy and all that. And then 
you got these people who were running around opening radio stations, and that's how you get um, Radio CPR. We opened Radio CPR as an act of civil disobedience, and we mm -hmm. thought we would be arrested within like a month or two, and we were stuck running a radio station for like <laughs> 10, 15 years. <laughs> There were many other fights in the in the neighborhood as the neighborhood further gentrified, as this other administration came in post 9-11. You know, there were many things to fight about, and it turned out to be great to have a radio station to, you know, express ourselves and to really help people who don't get, get access to media. You know, it's totally different now. This is pre-internet, you know, so, but at the time, you know, getting access to to media was very difficult for most people. And so this was a way to lift up people's voices that were not being heard. People were being deported and starved to death and their voices mm -hmm. were not being heard. And so then we get radio and like their voices can really be heard. It was really a beautiful thing. At the time when uh, CPR started, I was working for an immigrant rights organization that um, was very local in D.C., not so much oriented to the Washington part of D.C. politics, mm -hmm. but around immigration and welfare as it was happening with local agencies like human services and all the controls that were transforming human services in Washington, D.C. And um, part of our political work was very much oriented in this neighborhood around organizing, including tenants, including um, people who are threatened by immigration in multiple different ways. The radio station, it was within that context, but it was also a space for leadership development and political education. It wasn't so much who was listening, but who mm -hmm. was behind the microphone mm -hmm. that really mattered in terms of what was happening, in terms of the energy and magic of people who were telling their stories, but also doing a lot of analysis together in conversation. And that's what made CPR this really important space for, you know, definitely for transmission, but for the process of what it was like to be sitting down with neighbors or especially young people. There are a lot of teenagers who are part of different organizing projects um, who could own the means in terms of learning about radio transmission and, and feeling ownership of that, but also of the space and of their own ideas. And so that was a lot of the value of CPR in the neighborhood. And then there were some great shows. We had hoped that um, Jared Ball could have come today, but he had a show where people would drive into the neighborhood. So if you're familiar with low power radio, it doesn't transmit too far, <laughs> especially in DC where like the topography is such that there's some hills. But we lived in a dense neighborhood, so we had quite a big listening population, potentially. And some Jared Ball fans would drive in <laughs> to the neighborhood to listen to his show. Yeah. And possibly if they had cassette players to tape it, because yeah. that was how people tape, you know, recorded back in the 90s and early 2000s. And your very first question was like, what terminology do we use? We never use the term pirate radio, really, because we wanted to say, like, what we're doing is legit. We're not. Like, we are legit, we're a community radio station, and more importantly, we are an undocumented radio station. And like, that's how we talked about it. We're like, we're not illegal, we're undocumented. And that was reflective of what Athena was talking about at the time. You know, the Immigration Act of 96 was like this horrific thing. I was working at a place called the Latin American Youth Center at the time. Um, and there were kids, there were families, you know, who people were being deported, and it was like really <laughs> awful. Um, and so we were really intent on saying like, yeah, we're undocumented, we don't have papers, but like, we're here and we 
think we should be here and it's, it's important to, to do this work. So there's that. I think also, you know, one of the reasons that we were able to do what we did was because we had a home in a church in our neighborhood. Um, and this church had owned the building since 1974. Um, I grew up in this church. It was my first experience with anarchism, I like to think, mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> um, because it was a completely collective, non-hierarchical space with no formal leader. And, uh, and that church wanted their building to be used by people to further their dreams. And like that was how they talked about the space. And for a while, my band practiced there in the basement. And then I went to the church when we had this idea to start the radio station and was like, can we like start an unlicensed, illegal radio station? <laughs> in the basement room that we were using for band practice space. And they were like, that sounds awesome. But so we were in this church the whole entire time. I mean, they had total trust and faith in us and what we were doing, and they never charged us rent. You know, we were using electricity all the time. We ran an air conditioner all the time, so stuff, the equipment had to be kept cool, never charged us any money. We would give them money every once in a while, but, but it was really important for us to have that relationship. And that's like, going back to what Athena was talking about, I mean, the whole thing, was based on these like relationships and these friendships. And then it was also about like expanding those networks of, of actual real friendship to other people who were interested and wanted to get involved. And it worked because it was fun and we like really loved hanging out with each other. And just to say something about this church, which is called La Casa um, in this neighborhood, Mount Pleasant in DC, the church also was a hub for a lot of other things going on. There was like a series of neighborhood cabarets that were happening in the church. Originally, they were actually at this bar, but there was um, a ban on live music, or there was an aim by many different neighbors to end live music. They brown people. Right. Brown yeah. People playing music. Um, which was most of the establishments in the neighborhood were Salvadoran, Central American. Um, one of these bars was really being targeted by a group of mostly white homeowner neighbors, including some of our cabarets from Stand for Our Neighbors. And that got moved, cabarets, to this place, La Casa. It became sort of a hub for bands. We had different painting exhibits. And the Advisory Neighborhood Commission met there. So a lot of people were coming in and out of this place. And then during the day, it was a, an adult education center. There were just like um, already community hub established and this Pirate radio station upstairs, which most people kind of knew was going on, it seemed, the but ANC, some didn't. We, 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 <laughs> we, we, we would ANC broadcast the ANC, ANC these meeting. neighborhood government meetings. We would broadcast <laughs> them. But and the thing is, yeah, we were always like, oh, we don't. You know, radio CPR, yeah, in some undisclosed location. But like, not only did most people know where it was, most people had a key to this building. Like, I mean, <laughs> it was just like days. so many people <laughs> used this building. Right, and brother. So here we were, just a mile and a half maybe from the White House, doing pirate radio, like literally transmitting to maybe some of our FCC staff or even higher echelon FCC people. And we kept our transmitter most of the time under the roof. Antenna. Or the antenna, yeah. sorry. The antenna was concealed. So that might have helped in some ways. It's hard to know why we weren't actually targeted um, by the FCC, but that could have been one reason. But at times it was out of the roof, right? It was on, it was on Athena's on roof. roof. It, it's still a mystery to me. Yeah. I mean, I, so many radio stations were, were busted within a year or two of going on the air. 
And this is a mile and a half, not just from the White House, but from the FCC's <laughs> main offices. And they never came for them. I mean, part of it was that the antenna was well concealed, which limited the coverage. It made it, you know, like it's best if the antenna is over the roof as opposed to under the roof. But it still, still worked well enough that, that they were on the air for a ridiculously long time. But we were like, come on, like we're doing this as an act of civil disobedience. There are some people who are like, mm, I really want to keep my show. Like, I don't really <laughs> yeah. want to get busted. So that was, you know, part of the politics yeah. Yeah. in the yeah. radio CPR space. People would come on board who just had like totally amazing shows that were um, very political in their own right, but weren't necessarily part of the radio movement in terms of like, yeah, we want to get busted because we want to be able to amplify why there should be licenses. I mean, we were, you know, we were planning to get arrested and to have, you know, just to be irreproachable. I mean, it was just so hard to hate us. You know, we were in a church. We had kids. Uh, my kids had shows. Like, everybody's kids had shows, you know. We were all different colors, all different languages. So part of the infrastructure was also that there were already existing festivals and neighborhood activities that we were part of. So the Mount Pleasant Festival was something that we ran a stage at. Um, it wasn't just about being in the studio, it was really about being with neighbors as um, much as we could, having gatherings of people that would be recorded, but would also just be part of this uh, larger scene. Of the, the Wilson Center was sort of a famous DC punk space um, in a couple blocks from us. And so we did this show. Go, go back to the, the What a DJ Really Is show. So this is a show produced by Roberto Sanchez, for the most part. And then this band, The Cranium, and my band, The Stigmatics, and this band, Mache Tres, played. Kiki Aviles was a um, poet from the neighborhood. So the idea, Roberto's idea, his thing was like, what a DJ really is, is someone who can really like mix stuff, different things can be like mixed in one kind of one show. And so the idea was for it to be like a real mix of kinds of music and sort of his DJing and... Um, yeah, and the participation of, of Kike Aviles, I mean, who yeah. is also a big champion and a big booster in the beginning, tied us to, um, this is a uh, Salvadoran mostly community that had been mostly people who had fled the Civil War and who had been uh, involved in the, in the resistance and who had been involved in sanctuary movements and who had been uh, involved in supporting guerrilla movements and guerrilla radios. So that was also a, a network that was very key to the radio CPR. Yeah. Um, within just the neighborhood of Mount Pleasant and the adjacent neighborhood of Columbia Heights, there was maybe like 20 community-based organizations that were immigrant-based, including Garrison, which was Central American Resource Center, um, that was started by um, uh, people who had been involved with the FMLN in El Salvador. And just Latin American Youth Center. It's just a really saturated, intense um, neighborhood for organizing. And then this was the Radio Libre Mount Pleasant. So that was what we considered to be Radio CPR's first broadcast, which was the weekend of the demonstration that Petrie was talking about outside the FCC and the NAB. And so this was the Sunday night after this whole weekend of demonstrating in October of 98. And so we had this radio cabaret at La Casa and called it Radio Libre Mount Pleasant. And we had all these folks performing and we broadcast at 98.1 FM, so that was like our very first. So this is an interesting twist, which is that we also had the Mount Pleasant Broadcasting Club that we 
you had this sort of parallel club, which was just mm -hmm. the same people, no? No, the idea was we were gonna, that we were going to apply for a license, and it's because of these evil regulations mm -hmm. that we couldn't get a license. And so <laughs> that's why we organized this. Yeah. Um, and it, in your yeah. dad incorporated us. Yeah, I think so. And, uh, and we had to submit, <laughs> we tried to submit nonprofit status of the church, right. and they could not they find their certificate their to save their life. <laughs> yeah. but, but we created this legal entity so that we could say, look, we're all legit. It's just because of these stupid regulations that were undocumented. And I think that some of us had Mount Pleasant Broadcasting Club press badges, too. <laughs> well, it was also good, like, I, I interviewed the chief of police in D.C., and it was good not to have, like, the radio CPR. <laughs> and he was like, oh, Mount Pleasant Broadcasting Club, how cute. Endearingly charming to have a little club, but then he said a lot, because he thought, um, at this time in D.C., we had uh, raids response team, we were going out to work sites that were being raided. Um, there are many people that we knew and um, families were facing deportation. And so there are quite a few people who um, were part of Radio CPR, who were part of the immigrant rights movement, both in D.C. and then regionally. And um, yeah, so that was a, a big part of the and here's just some clips from the studio. This is the actual space. Um, this was a great uh -huh. show. DJ Bent and DJ Mother Scheister had a fantastic show called Gender Fatigue. Mm -hmm. And they actually had a um, genderfatigueblogspot.com, and it's still <laughs> up. Um, so you can see sort of the archive of their shows. And they had brilliant shows, really amazing shows with incredible interviews all around. It was fun. Right? Dance parties were a really important part of it, too. Yeah. Like we had these dance parties to raise money in people's houses. I have one in my apartment once. The Mother Scheister, the one you just showed, that was at her house. This DJ collective that, that Mother Scheister and Bent and um, Rat were a part of and other people, their whole thing was like people coming together in like awesome, safe, welcoming, fun spaces and being together in person and just like having fun and understanding that is the basis for organizing. Mm -hmm. When you're when you're doing a radio show, you're like in the studio, Mario talked about this before, you're in the studio and you're separate from the people you're talking to. But you're you're building something with the people you're in the studio with. So so on, on the one hand we had this thing where it's like we're just like in the studio talking out so we didn't know who necessarily. But then on the other hand we had all these events and the whole point was to have like people come and be in person and meet and like build relationships. So as this neighborhood as we no, as neighborhoods get more gentrified, there's often times, accompanied by more police, but also there can be turf wars that go on as people's sort of terrain gets moved. And so there was a tremendous amount of violence between different gangs, different groups in this neighborhood. So there's just a lot of um, thinking about how do we create safe spaces mm -hmm. in this much bigger way in terms of thinking about what does safety mean for us by having real experiences of, of relationships and understanding as neighbors and beginning to think about safety there and then that included of course like some know your rights uh, around the heightened policing that was happening for people who were really vulnerable. And the other component was the youth organizing that was going on. Our friend Natalie was doing that other people were doing, empowering youth with that idea of finding them safe spaces to, to, to grow and blossom. Which 
actually reminds me too of uh, one thing that we often did was we would put on radio stations during big protests, like the IMF protests. And uh, at one point there was a radio station that was hidden on the same block as the Latin American Youth Center. We, we lent them our equipment. Well, yes, yeah, we almost lost that. our equipment. Well, because we were broadcasting that day and there was this massive police confrontation and there was, there was tear gas in the streets and there was all kinds of confrontation. At a certain point, people on the march heard that the FCC had surrounded the radio station. And uh, it was in this apartment on that same block. And so all these marchers broke off from the march and they came up to protect the radio station and so they kind of gathered outside, and then all the police started lining up to support the FCC in catching the radio station. And the most amazing thing happened, which was that the director of, of the youth center came out and went up to the police and was like, what's going on? And the police, the police guy was like, well, there's a pirate radio station in that building. And she said, you mean to tell me that you're going to have like tear gas and like batons and like, a giant riot in front of my community youth center because there's a pirate radio station in an apartment building. And he was like, oh, no, ma'am. No, actually, we, no, no, we weren't going to do that. And the police turned around and walked away. And several of the youth from her, from Latin American Youth Center were on the radio. A question I had, and it doesn't necessarily seem relevant anymore, based on your photos, is like, did you have any difficulties recruiting people to get involved or like, were people like maybe afraid that it seems too technical or anything like that? It seems like it, like you were talking about there were so many relationships. Um, but yeah, we, we had like a process for people getting involved and there was an application you had to fill out and then uh, you had to go through a training and we had a manual that we'd written and all this stuff. We, we actually, you know, when we started, we started off just broadcasting one night a week, just Sunday nights. And the reason for that was because we actually knew enough people who were like, yeah, 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 I want to do this, I want to do a show. But we really wanted to be intentional from the beginning about making sure that like, the shows on the air represented the broad diversity of this neighborhood. And so we wanted, we wanted to be intentional about making sure we always had Spanish language shows, for instance. Um, you know, so that when we were just broadcasting one night a week, which we did for like the first year, we just broadcast one night a week, even though we had the equipment, we could have been on 24 seven, but we wanted to like build up slowly to the point where we felt like we were, we were recruited and we recruited people, you know, who we thought could do a great show um, and who were like interested in, you know, were working on issues in the neighborhood. I think we were slow and intentional about expanding. So it was one night a week and then it was three nights a week and then it was every day, um, ultimately. What about Radio Mutiny? How did Radio yes. Mutiny relate to the social movements in Philly? And well, I, I, I had recently moved uh, to Philadelphia when all this started happening with pirate radio. And, uh, and I'll actually, I'll take that opportunity to, to read this passage from the book. Yeah. One thing that happened was, uh, so Stephen Donifer was a great anarchist and a very mediocre businessman and, and builder of kits. He was kind of a one-man show in a lot of ways, and it was... You know, in the world of electronics, parts are always going obsolete or changing their availability and whatever. And so he would make these boxes of parts that he would send out that you could build yourself. But often the directions were like two or three generations behind the actual parts that were sent out. And so we spent 
months like trying to solder together this thing with like sort of outdated instructions, but we didn't know that they were outdated and <laughs> and we got pretty discouraged. We were at it for about nine months. But then some someone uh, gave me this book. I can't even remember who it was. Um, it's called Rebel Radio, or in Spanish, it's Mil y Un Cuentas de Radio Venceremos. Um, and it's uh, basically the story of, of the rebel radio station in El Salvador during, uh, during the war in the 80s. It takes place between 82 and uh, 91 or so. Uh, as a teenager, I had, a, I had opposed the United States-backed war in El Salvador. Um, we had signed on to the Pledge of Resistance against the war in El Salvador. And the United States gave over $3 billion in military aid uh, to crush this rebellion there. So I, uh, you know, we, we read this book uh, about their radio station. And one of their, the big goals of the organization from the very start was to, to run their own independent source of information because the media in that country was all owned by the same you know, capitalist and political class that dominated the politics of, of the country and was, you know, this very U.S. propped up puppet regime. So we read this book and it's a little, a little long, but it's a pretty fun book. So <clears throat> we were broadcasting the nighttime program live, cool as could be, when the compass scanning the enemy communications picked up the following message. Location of Radio Vence Ramos, signal on coordinates, such and such. Shit. That was our exact position. We ended the program, packed up the equipment, and roared out of there. A few minutes later, the planes were flying over Paracone Hill, ready to turn us into mashed potatoes. How had they located us so precisely? The answer was goniometers. A goniometer is a gadget that was used in the Second World War, an apparatus that indicates where a radio signal is coming from. The goniometer's needle moves towards the source of the broadcast like a compass for sound. Then all it takes is triangulation. They put one goniometer here and point it this way, another there and point it in the same spot. The two imaginary lines cross, and that's the source of the radio signal. May, not exactly, but close enough. If there is nothing in the way the FM signal travels in a straight line, those fucking goniometers can determine the source with absolute precision. We figured they had, been, had to be using goniometers to track down the station and our military communications as well, since walkie-talkies broadcast on FM. How the hell could we solve such a ball buster? Wherever we put the radio operators, they found them. They knew their voices. They knew which radio operator was working for which com commander. They located the signal, and in three minutes, you had a helicopter assault on your hands. The first thing we did was broadcast and run. As soon as the show was over, we'd take off like fugitives. That method didn't work. It was like playing with fire. Had we kept it up in a month, either our nerves or our legs would have given out. So then it goes on to one of their techni technicians. Mauricio racked his brains until one day he let out a cry of eureka. Barbed wire! Mauricio had taught mechanics in San Salvador. He had made bobbins, relays, that sort of thing. He's very Salvadoran, a kid with the wildest creativity and the most infectious spirit for work I've ever seen. He and Apollonio were an explosive co combination for keeping the station running out in the mountains under the most adverse uh, conditions. Barbed wire! It's incredible how many pastures there are in El Salvador. In such a small country, there's no place that doesn't have a fence, usually where you least expect it. You should see the number of barbed wire fences in Morazone. Mauricio realized that barbed wire is a good conductor, like a telephone line, and the goniometers could not pick it up. He tried voices, he tried music, and it worked. The more powerful the tape recorder that sent the signal, the longer the line could be. 
We did tests with two kilometers of wire, then four kilometers, then eight, then 12. You could hear it, and it couldn't be detected. Get ready, Mauricio warned us. Tomorrow, you're going on the air via barbed wire. Be careful you don't cut your lips. How's it sound? Ugh, good, but too many pork rinds. Since it wasn't a genuine coaxial cable, during the broadcast, we'd get a lot of noise that sounded like people chewing pork rinds. So we had a battle to death with the pork rinds, and we began by connecting the studios and the transmitter with a kilometer of barbed wire, but never stayed in one spot. They would launch an operation against us, and we'd have to move. As soon as we'd arrive at a new position, exhausted from the enormous loads on our shoulders, the compas of the security squad would be laying out barbed wire. They didn't wait to eat or sleep or anything. They just, they just grabbed as much wire as they could, and then they started laying down the line. That's what we called it, laying down the line. Although, in this case, it wasn't a political line. It was barbed wire. Imagine unrolling barbed wire through gorges, over peaks, across rivers, bushwhacking through thorns and thickets. Sometimes it was as much as 10, 10 kilometers long. That's tiring work, exhausting, but that's how we started winning the war against the goniometers. The invention worked brilliantly in summer, but in the winter when it rained, it was dangerous because each of those wires is a powerful lightning rod. It was ridiculous how many guys got burned by it. The workshop couldn't keep up with the repairs. We worked with them and the barbed wire from 86 until the end of 88. Three whole years, they, they never found them. The military never figured out how they were doing it. So anyway, we got this book and you know, we had been like working on this transmitter for like, I don't know, nine months or something like that, trying to solder it and it blows up and we don't know what we're doing. And, and then I read the book, I pass it to like the other people in, in the collective, the, the five of us all read it within about two weeks. And at our next uh, meeting, like we just like looked at each other and we were like, comrades, <laughs> what the hell is wrong with us? <laughs> you know, I mean, we're like reading about these guys that are like, you know, feel lucky to have a donkey to carry their their 200 pound transmitter like up and down through the valleys and like dodging American helicopter fire. And here we are living in the land of radio shacks and, you know, and and universities and, you know, and so that's what really gave us the resolve to actually finish. And within a month, we, we actually made our transmitter work. I highly recommend the book, Jose Ignacio Lopez Vigil. Um, that is far from the most exciting, like there are way more exciting stories <laughs> about it. So Radio Mutiny um, got its launch from that and from the inspiration of, of that struggle. I guess the only other question I'm personally interested in is, um, it's like two questions, like what was lacking in radio at the time when you guys formed your stations? And I think especially like someone would maybe compare it to like public radio, NPR, PRI, mm -hmm. And I know that there's a tense relationship between micro-broadcasting movement and um, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Yes. Um, could you talk about that a bit? When I was working at the Latin American Youth Center, I was teaching radio production there. That was part of what I was doing as like an after-school program thing. Um, and we would, you know, the kids would make stuff. It's like, it was really good stuff. There's no way that NPR is going to air this stuff because it's too, like, raw, you know, it, technically and, and just, you know, it wouldn't fit that kind of NPR sound. And so, to me, like, for instance, we had a pro we did a project once. Who was talking about safety? You were talking about safety, mm -hmm. or Marnie, safety. Mm -hmm. Just like this question, of like, what is safety really? And and we did this, and this because there was so much police harassment of young people of color, and um, young men of color especially. But you know, so we so with the kids at the um, youth center, we decided to do a radio project where they would interview their peers about what is safety, just to kind of get at this because you know there was and there was all this like because of the gentrification happening in the neighborhood, there was all these 
you know, people kind of organizing for like safe streets and stuff, but like, you know, thinking about safety in, in a very different way. Um, and so anyway, so these kids went out and interviewed their friends about like, what makes you feel safe? You know, and, the, and they recorded all this stuff. And then they came back with these recordings where these, their peers were just talking about, you know, not, you know, fearing, you know, not fearing the police were gonna harass them um, and humiliate them in public. Um, not fearing eviction, not fearing deportation. Like these are the things that would make them feel safe in their communities. And so we took that tape that these kids made and we, um, I went to the Mount Pleasant Library and some of the neighbors had called this forum on safety in the public library. And we were like, okay, well let's talk about what safety really means like from different perspectives. And so some of the young people who had did these interviews just played this tape. The room was packed, a lot of people there, there were a lot of homeowners, Police. mostly white homeowners who were like thinking about safety from the perspective of not wanting their homes to be broken into and that kind of thing. And then they could, they had to sit there and listen to these teenagers who, who weren't gonna come to the meeting, but because their friends had <laughs> interviewed them and then brought the tape, their voices could be there. And it was a very powerful moment. And in fact, this guy who had been wanting to uh, start like an orange hat patrol in the neighborhood. Oh, yeah. At the end of it, he was like, never mind. <laughs> like it just yeah. totally, it changed his mind. And so, and that was like right before we started the station, but that was also part of like the thinking behind it was, okay, this is a place to share, you know, these um, perspectives and uh, in, a, in a way also that's more than like a three minute story that you could send into NPR. You know, it was like a more involved kind of thing that required some context. And NPR hated low power FM. Yeah, and NPR was totally started. opposed to it. And like, you know, it sucked. Like they were really opposed to it. They, Cause they knew it was more gonna take away their listeners than like the commercial radio listeners. It was a completely economic issue. Yeah. Um, and yeah. that's one thing that I think is interesting about the whole thing was people were surprised that that NPR opposed uh, community radio, but actually it made absolute perfect sense <laughs> right. from their perspective. And so they felt like if we started getting low power community radio stations, they felt we would be a competing for the same listenership, which we were like, why? And the other thing they thought is we might get some of the same grants. We might be eligible for the same grants that they got. And so, but of course they can't say that. <laughs> and neither could the broadcast, the, the commercial broadcasters, they couldn't say that. So instead they cooked up this like ridiculous story that these 100 watt radio licenses were going to cause interference with 50,000 watt radio stations. And it was sort of laughable on the face of it, but it was just technical enough a topic that they could like go in and sort of say it with a semi straight face to mm -hmm. Congress people. So what they tried to do was they had a basic economic interest in swinging the, the barn door shut and not letting any more radio stations on the dial, but they dressed it up as this really confusing thing that only expert radio engineers could like really talk about intelligently. And no, 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 they didn't really, they had no problem with freedom of speech and they weren't afraid of competition from us, but they just wanted to make sure that like not a single radio listener of theirs would, would receive interference from one of our channels. It was one of the, um, the many places where I see social movements as having to um, confront the fact that more and more questions are being framed as scientific or technical or expertise questions um, when underneath there's actually like economic interests driving the real what's really going on and so I think that that's something that for for future movements to think about is like is how 
how that's deployed and how you resist that, how you return, how you, how you don't ignore the science or the technology of it, but you, you, you bring it back to what the, what the issues really are about and understand the real drivers of it. I would say one other thing about the um, NPR thing is that you know, our stuff was so hyper-local. Like we would have someone from the president of a tenants association from like one block away from the radio station come and talk about like her work and like what they were trying to do at this, at this building. But we had, you know, relationships with the el local elementary school. Like it was this very hyper-local kind of um, radio that NPR is just not suited. Those stations are citywide. They're just not suited to do that kind of thing. But like there was this like, you know, nationwide movement. And so we tried to um, connect in various ways to other stations. So one of the things that we would do, Prometheus was organizing these um, barn raisings to help these communities who were able to get low power licenses, but we wanted to support other communities that did get licenses. And so uh, Petrie mentioned going building a station in Immokalee, Florida, um, and a number of us went down there. That was a station, the license was held by the uh, Coalition of Immokalee Workers, which was this farm workers group that we were very supportive of. And so we went down, a number of us, to like help build that station which was really exciting to like build those connections. Um, so, yeah. And so what do you guys think are the possibilities and limits of radio today compared to what they were when your station started? Um, and how do you see people using it to advance social movements and things like that? Well, I'll, I'll say I think it's crazy, but I, I mean, I'm still building radio stations in 2019 and I never would have thought that it would quite go this long, but I keep on building them. And it's weird what's happening with radio. It's uh, like we've seen a lot of things where like technology will totally change everything. And then like one day the industry's there and the next day it's gone. Radio listenership, somehow it's still at 93% of Americans listen to the radio every week. And uh, now it's changed dramatically. That number hides something, which is that it's gone from like people listening to it for like eight or 10 hours at work to like it's very focused on drive time. One of the things that people would always say to us is like, why are you so focused on radio when like the internet is the future? You know, and there's this whole industry of guys that would jump up on the table. Internet, it's the future, plastics, you know, you know whatever. And we were, we were very suspicious of those guys because we were not trying to change only the future. We were also trying to change the present. And so we... Uh, we were like, don't give us like a promise of a new technology that's going to solve things. We, we know what's happened with lots of technological promises is like new technologies always come in with these promises of how they're going to solve everything. And then they just either make new problems or, or distort the power relationships around the old ones. And they're almost always designed and built by elites for, for their exploitation. So, you know, my son is in his 30s. middle school, I guess, people started having their own cell phones, right? And he said it ruined his social life. Because he used to go to the corner after school and see what was happening, right? <laughs> and once everybody had their own cell phone, they didn't go to the corner to see what was happening. They called the people they already knew, right. and they had a party, and you didn't find out about it, and that this was really the bane of his existence. I think it would have been very hard. How would people know about our community podcast in the same way that yeah. they would know about our radio station? How would it get people to drive into the neighborhood to listen to our, our, our podcast, right? Or how, and this is the other thing about streaming. Sure, it's great that people in Arkansas can listen to <laughs> us, but it doesn't do anything for us. I think their station is, it's like, it's one of my favorites. 
um, and it's such an example of like a thing that only worked because uh, because it was friends that put it together who just totally adored each other, right. and and just made like yeah. and like and and made uh, made the this like sort of social and collective space that's like unlike anything you could buy, you know, just like like something like the kind of community that that we think about. But the um, in terms of low power fam, I mean, I on the one hand, it's like. I'm always like thinking, did we win? Did we lose? Did mm -hmm. we win? Did we lose? And, uh, you know, on the one hand, there are 3,000 FM radio stations on the dial that there weren't before. Mm -hmm. And so, so it's like, uh, whatever, about a, uh, a fifth of all radio stations are low power FM stations wow. um, now. On the other hand, they managed to delay us so far that radio was not the same thing it was in 1996 by the time they started giving out the radio licenses in, in the cities in 2013. In that way, we totally lost. They totally, they bluffed and delayed and dithered long enough that the prize that we got at the end of it was not the prize that we were going for when we walked into it. We spent so much time battling for our right to exist that I never touched the issues of like, say, CPB funding. We never went after a lot of the grants that like might have been available to it because we were trying not to, to show that we weren't threatening their economic base. And for that reason, lots of these stations are kind of stillborn because volunteers can do amazing things. And like you just saw, like an example of like the amazing things volunteers can do. But volunteers, it is very difficult to see how they can fundamentally transform the way Americans get news and information and culture. And for that reason, like I look around at the radio station, the 3000 radio stations that are out there, and I could, I could spend five hours telling you about ones that I'm incredibly proud of and that have made all these awesome impacts. But out of those 3000, they're a very small number. You know, they're, you know, they are not, have, have had the kinds of successes that I was hoping that they could all end mm -hmm. up having. Um, because, you know, they're cash starved. They don't have a lot. They don't have the resources to do neighborhood, hyperlocal investigative journalism like we need. I mean, one of the reasons our station worked and lasted as long as it did, there's a, a lot of reasons. But one is because it cost barely any money to build a pirate radio station. We had this like one punk fundraiser that raised enough money for us to buy all the equipment we needed. Um, we were, because we were so incredibly embedded in this community, we had free space to be in. Um, but yeah, we didn't really need that much money. And because we were, you know, undocumented and had no papers, yeah, we'd sell t-shirts. Um, we just never had to become part of the nonprofit industrial complex, which was a beautiful freeing thing. Nobody was ever writing a grant. Nobody was ever like messing with any of that stuff. It was incredibly freeing. So why, why did CPR end? Was it that end oh, of the digital, I mean the radio? It's a great, aspect? yeah, I mean it's a great question. Um, there's a lot of reasons for it. Um, I mean none of us were involved by the end. And one of the things that was cool was seeing this sort of leadership transition happen over the years to new groups kind of taking it on. Um, but the reason it really ended, I do think, so I think there was, it, it became less urgent over time because there was all these much better ways to actually talk to people <laughs> than the radio over time um, and communicate. And, and, but the main thing was that the church um, decided to disband. Um, and so the church, after 50 years, decided um, 
you know, the people like me who had grown up in this church weren't like going to church as adults. <laughs> but anyway, they decided to, to disband. And then they went through this very interesting year-long intentional process of figuring out what to do with this building that they'd owned since 74 and that was in this neighborhood that had so gentrified. And they ended up deciding to essentially give it to an organization that does um, immigrants' rights organizing. And so, um, and so that transfer happened in December of 2016. And so I think if CPR had been going really strong at that point, it maybe could have continued to stay in the building because the church, when they gave the building away, they, wanted, they really wanted the radio station to be able to stay if it wanted to. But the radio at that point wasn't strong enough really to like try to make that transition, I think. So I'd also say that um, like so the, the, some of those people who kind of took over after the sort of station initially got started kind of took it to the next level um, were this group of four or five folks um, who also had this DJ collective called Anthology of Booty DJ Collective. Um, and they um, do shows and if, and if con they did a lot of DJ, live DJ shows, you know, parties um, and continue to do them today. And so, I, I mean, I feel like, I mean, if some of those folks were here, I think what they would, I imagine what they would talk about was the, the, the parties and the kind of continuing, you know, not no longer doing shows like in the radio booth, but still DJing like in public in parties, and mm -hmm. that being like a really powerful um, way again, yeah, to like build community in person. And I think especially with you know the atomization of the internet, which has happened over the past twenty years or so, um, understanding those as even more important spaces, those like collective in person spaces. So, and speaking of social movements, since I'm up here and I have a microphone, <laughs> um, DC still does not have statehood. I now moved to Brooklyn, so I have two senators and a congressman, and I call them all the time <laughs> because I've lived for 30 years in D.C. So the three of us each have two senators representing us, and Amanda has no senators and no congressperson. And so call your representative and tell them D.C. statehood. Okay, I'm back. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys so much. You've been listening to Audio Interference, produced by Interference.